Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all, this is episode 115, and here I'm going to be talking about how the early Christians approached the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. What were they doing? What did they think about it? How did they treat the Jewish people uh, during that time and also a little bit during the time during the Bar Kokhba revolt later in the uh, second century AD? And if this episode is a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review on my Apple podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith. And speaking of rating and reviews, my new book, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom, is out now. You can find it on Amazon, lots of different places. Uh, We've had a little trouble getting the audio book up and running. It has to go through these different checks, but uh, that will be available very soon as well. If you've read it or parts of it even, and it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a rating and review I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency, and you can find all the stuff that Omega Frequency does on our YouTube channels, Omega Frequency and Omega Frequency Live. Lots of content there for you to check out. So many good, good videos. So please go check that out. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into episode 115. In the last week of his life, Jesus was in Jerusalem, and Matthew records in chapter 24 that he came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Luke records a similar instance. In chapter 1, starting in verse 20, Jesus said to his disciples, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled." Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Just a little bit before that, Jesus was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees that were hypocritical. And he says to them in Matthew 23, verse 34, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, 
all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Over three decades later, in the year AD 66, the Roman emperor Nero needed money and ordered his representative in Judea, Gessius Florus, to confiscate it from the temple treasure in Jerusalem. The obvious reason why this incident led to war was the religious tension between the Jewish populace and the Roman government. And accordingly, under the fervor of the zealots, open war broke out all over Palestine in that same year. At Caesarea, all Jewish residents were killed. And in the late summer of AD 66, the Romans marched into Palestine with 40,000 soldiers. By September, they reached the walls of Jerusalem. His forces were so strongly resisted by the Jews, though, that he retreated to Caesarea, losing 6,000 men in the process. When the report of his defeat reached Rome, Nero's great general, Vespasian, was dispatched to put down the rebellion. But then Nero died in AD 68, and Vespasian was recalled to Rome. He eventually becomes the Roman emperor, and he sends his son Titus to complete the siege at Jerusalem. And on April 14th, AD 70, during Passover, Titus laid siege to Jerusalem. After a horrible, bloody war, the prophecy that Jesus made in the scripture, the destruction of Jerusalem, was accomplished on September 7th, AD 70. Now, from a Christian perspective, what was the reason for its destruction? Well, the rejection of the prophets that God had sent to the Jews, and also the rejection and murder of the Messiah, Jesus. But what was the final straw? Well, According to Christian historian Eusebius, in God's eyes, the final straw was the murder of Jesus' brother, James, the leader of the Messianic Jewish church in Jerusalem. Eusebius describes how James began to preach to the people from the top of the temple And he records in chapter 23 of book two on Christian history. So they, the Jews, went up and threw down the just man and said to each other, let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall. But he turned and knelt down and said, I entreat thee, Lord God, our father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And while they were thus stoning him, one of the priests of the son of Rechab, the son of the Rechabites, 
who are mentioned by Jeremiah the prophet, cried out saying, Cease, what do you do? The just one prays for you. And one of them, who was a fuller, took the club with which he beat out clothes, and he struck the just man, speaking of James, he struck him on the head, and thus he suffered martyrdom. And they buried him on the spot by the temple, and his monument still remains by the temple. He became a true witness, both to Jews and Greeks, that Jesus is the Christ. And immediately Vespasian besieged them. James was so admirable a man and so celebrated among all for his justice that the more sensible even of the Jews were of the opinion that this was the cause of the siege of Jerusalem, which happened to them immediately after his martyrdom for no other reason than their daring act against him. Josephus, at least, has not hesitated to testify this in his writings, where he says, These things happened to the Jews to avenge James the Just, who was a brother of Jesus, that is called the Christ. For the Jews slew him, although he was a most just man. Unquote. So, pretty interesting, right? Now, Eusebius says that even Josephus agrees that the Jews believed the reason for the destruction of the temple was their murder of James, the brother of Jesus. So we see that God does avenge his people, yet God still mercifully, according to Eusebius and Josephus, God mercifully gave the Jews in Jerusalem warnings to heed Jesus's prophetic words from the gospel about the destruction of Jerusalem and what they should do when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Eusebius continues to lean heavily on Josephus, who was an eyewitness of the siege at Jerusalem, for his account. And so this is taken from book two again, chapter eight. So we're going backwards a little bit. And the title is The Signs Which Preceded the War. So Eusebius begins, Taking then the work of this author, speaking of Josephus, read what he records in the sixth book of his history. His words are as follows. So this is, again, Eusebius quoting Josephus. Thus were the miserable people won over at this time by the impostors and false prophets, But they did not give heed nor give credit to the visions and signs that foretold the approaching desolation. On the contrary, as if struck by lightning, and if possessing neither eyes nor understanding, they slided the proclamations of God. At one time, a star in the form of a sword stood over the city and a comet which lasted for a whole year. And again, before the revolt and before the disturbances that led to war, when the people were gathered for the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the eighth day of the month of Xanthicus, at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone about the altar and the temple that it seemed to be bright day. And this continued for half an hour. This seemed to the unskillful a good sign, 
but was interpreted by the sacred scribes as portending those events which very soon took place, unquote. So it seems like God was showing that there is a sword coming to Jerusalem. Watch out. Let's keep going. Quote, And at the same feast, a cow led by the high priest to be sacrificed brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. Pretty strange. Giving birth, labor pains. Four, and the eastern gate of the inner temple which was of bronze and massive and which at evening was closed with difficulty by 20 men and rested upon iron bound beams and had bars sunk deep into the ground was seen at the sixth hour of the night to open by itself. And not many days after the feast on the 21st of the month, Artemisium, a certain marvelous vision was seen which passes belief. The prodigy might seem fabulous were it not related by those who saw it and were not the calamities which followed deserving of such signs. For before the setting of the sun, chariots and armed troops were seen throughout the whole region in mid-air, wheeling through the clouds and encircling the cities." Unquote. So like a heavenly army surrounding Jerusalem. Let's continue. Quote, And at the feast which is called Pentecost, when the priests entered the temple at night, as was their custom to perform the services, they said that at the first they perceived a movement and a noise, and afterward a voice as of a great multitude saying, Let us go hence. Unquote. Basically, Let's get out of here. Let's continue. Quote, But what follows is still more terrible. For a certain Jesus, the son of Ananias, a common countryman, four years before the war, when the city was particularly prosperous and peaceful, came to the feast at which it was customary for all to make tents out of at the temple to honor God. That would be uh, Shavuot or uh, tabernacles, right? Continuing, And he suddenly began to cry out, quote, A voice from the east, a voice from the west, a voice from the four winds, a voice against Jerusalem and against the temple, a voice against bridegrooms and brides, a voice against all the people, unquote. Day and night he went through all the alleys crying thus, but certain of the more distinguished citizens, vexed at the ominous cry, seized the man and beat him with many stripes. But without uttering a word in his own behalf or saying anything in particular to those who were, that were present, he continued to cry out in the same words as before. And the rulers, thinking as it were that the man was moved by a higher power, brought him before the Roman governor. And then, Though he was scourged to the bone, he neither made supplication nor shed tears, but changing his voice to the most lamentable tone possible, he answered each stroke with the words, Woe, woe unto Jerusalem. Unquote. So, what did the Christians living in Jerusalem do? when they saw all those things coming upon Jerusalem. 
Well, Eusebius records in book three, chapter five, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come there from Jerusalem, then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. You know, when we think about these kind of events in light of the way many uh, modern Bible prophecy teachers talk about Israel, it seems odd that the uh, Christians living in Jerusalem would just leave. You know, isn't it true that those who bless Israel will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed? Thinking about that promise made to Abraham back in Genesis from a modern American perspective, it would seem like those first century Jewish Christians there in Jerusalem should have stayed, dug in their heels, and fought the Romans with all their might, since they should be a blessing to Israel by fighting for them. So why did those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem flee to the mountains? Why did they flee? Well, it seems like they fled to Pella because Jesus told them to. They were about keeping the commands of Christ. That's why you see James preaching to them in the temple. Now, that's a pretty bold thing to do for James to preach the gospel to the Jews in, like at the temple mount. Can you think about Christians being at the Temple Mount preaching the gospel these days? Have you ever heard of such a thing happening these days? Blessing Israel these days by preaching the gospel at the Temple Mount to the Jews? Uh, it, it would probably wind up looking a lot similar to what happened to James there with him being murdered. But isn't it amazing that he continues to act like Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So he's continuing to keep the commands of Christ even during that time. It would seem like that's probably being a blessing to Israel. And the Jewish people continue to persecute the Jewish Christians and Christians throughout the first century and even into the second century as well. Hadrian was the emperor in 125 uh, AD when a man named Aristides wrote him an apology, an apologetic type work about Christianity. And in this work, he describes the different beliefs of various people groups like the barbarians and, and the Jews and the Christians. And he doesn't have very kind things to say about pagans, but he does have something really kind to say about the Jews. Listen to what Aristides tells Emperor Hadrian, who is, by the way, pretty upset with the Jews at this point and is about to get even more upset 
with the Jews. But listen to what he says. He says, Let us come now, O king, to the history of the Jews also, and see what opinion they have as to God. The Jews then say that God is one, the creator of all, and omnipotent, and that it is not right that any other should be worshipped except this God alone. And herein they appear to approach the truth more than all the nations, especially in that they worship God and not his works, and they imitate God by the philanthropy which prevails among them, for they have a compassion on the poor, and they release the captives and bury the dead and do such things as these which are acceptable before God and well-pleasing also to men, which customs they have received from their forefathers. Nevertheless, They too erred from true knowledge, and in their imagination they conceive that it is God they serve, whereas by their mode of observance it is to the angels and not to God that their service is rendered. And when they celebrate Sabbaths and the beginning of the months and the feasts of unleavened bread and a great fast and fasting and circumcision and purification of meats, which things, however, they do not observe perfectly. As Colossians 2 says, those things are just a shadow of what was to come, for the fullness, the perfection, is found in Jesus. So Aristides, he gives many uh, compliments to the Jews in their monotheism and in their uh, acts of piety and kindness toward the poor. But he is also kind by showing how they have failed to receive the true knowledge of God in the worship of Messiah Jesus, who is the fullness, the fulfillment of all of the things written in the law. About a decade later, a man named Simon Bar Kokhba began a revolt again against the Romans and against Emperor Hadrian. And Justin, Justin Martyr, in his first apology, writes about this war uh, led by Simon Bar Kokhba, uh, who was, by the way, uh, called by Rabbi Akiba in that time to be the Messiah. Uh, but Justin writes in his first apology in chapter 31, For in the Jewish war which lately raged, uh, Bar Kokhbas, Simon Bar Kokhba, the leader of the revolt of the Jews gave orders that Christians alone should be led to cruel punishments unless they would deny Jesus Christ and utter blasphemy. So uh, Bar Kokhba was not very kind toward the Christians there in Judea. In fact, having them uh, put to death unless they renounced Christ and thus blasphemed. But the Christians continue to be kind toward the Jews of that time. Around the same time, uh, a, a man named Mathetes, and that's probably a nickname because that means disciple, he writes a letter to a man named Diognetus, and he writes about the way that Christians treat people, and particularly the Jews. He writes, doing good, the Christians are punished as evildoers, 
and being punished, they rejoice as if they were thereby quickened by life. War is waged against them as aliens by the Jews, and persecution is carried on against them by the Greeks, and yet those that hate them cannot tell the reason of their hostility. Coming back to Justin Martyr around 160 AD, we see in his dialogue with Trypho the Jew what the Jews were saying. So here, Justin is going to be laying out the uh, false claims uh, and uh, malicious false claims by the Jewish people against Jesus and his followers. So again, he's presenting what they are saying. He writes, quote, You, the Jews, have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy has sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb, where he was laid when unfastened from the cross, and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Moreover, you accuse him of having taught those godless, lawless, and unholy doctrines which you mentioned to the condemnation of those who confess him to be the Christ and a teacher from and son of God. Besides this, even when your city is captured and your land ravaged, you do not repent but dare to utter imprecations on him and on those who believe in him. Yet, We do not hate you, or those who by your means have conceived such prejudices against us. But we pray that even now all of you may repent and obtain mercy from God, the compassionate and long-suffering Father of all. Justin shows forth what Aristides wrote to Hadrian in 125, that the Christians have continued to, quote, comfort their oppressors and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them, unquote. The early Christians did not at all desire the death or destruction of Jews. They would have arguments with the Jews, but they were in no way anti-Semitic. Just because we vehemently disagree with people does not mean we hate them. Just because we disagree strongly with people, we can still long for their good. And in fact, sometimes disagreeing strongly with people is an act of love if we think that they are heading toward destruction. The early Christians longed for the salvation of the Jewish people, just like Paul did in Romans. And I just want to read for you some of Romans chapter 9 and 10. And you can hear Paul's heart for the Jewish people, just like the early Christians echo later in time. Paul writes in Romans 9 verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Do you want to be a blessing to those of the Jewish faith who you interact with? We need to be like James, the brother of Jesus, and boldly testify to the truth of the gospel and do so in a manner worthy of the gospel, being a faithful witness just like the ultimate faithful witness, Jesus Christ. And it may come with consequences, but God is a good God. He is a good judge. He sees and he will reward all of us according to our deeds. Are you ready to stand before him? Are your Jewish friends ready to stand before him? How can you be a blessing to them and tell them about the true temple, the embodiment of the temple, the fulfillment of the temple, as John talks about in chapter 2 of his gospel, the true temple of the Lord that was destroyed and yet rebuilt in three days, Messiah, Jesus. Take a deep breath as my heart starts beating Listen as the king calls out my name Taste and see of the good things he has made Go to sleep and wake up to his wonder I wasn't meant to do this on my own I could never dream of the beauty he has shown me How could I begin to doubt your goodness And knowing when I question your great love How could I have listened to deception My God, what have I done Even still you cover me with mercy Don't give a place to jealousy, my son Let's fix up